You're listening to a Radio Stockdale podcast. Podcasts that are inspiring, interactive, and feature various discussions of leadership, ethics, and law. Welcome to Philosophy at the Movies, a podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of films. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me as always... Sean Baker. And today's topic is the 1994 film, To Live. So this is a, this is a film from China, and it is a historical epic. So we first, it takes, the beginning of the film takes place in the 40s, I believe they said it's 1949? Yeah. This is, so World War II is over. What it is is interesting, World War II, the Japanese aren't even mentioned at all in this movie. Which well, it's because it's well after. Yeah. Um, what, 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 we're jumping in story here in the late 40s. Um, what people don't realize uh, that uh, was going on in China, even during World War II, was basically a civil war between the nationalists led by Chiang Kai-shek and um, the communists, obviously, led by Mao. And they were often uh, not cooperating at all with each other, fighting the Japanese, and in fact, fighting each other. And they each held different parts of uh, China as well. So after the, the pressure of the um, uh, external threat from Japan was released, then they went full bore into this civil war. So we're jumping in there. About 1948, 49, um, because the communists um, win that civil war in 1949. Yeah, and their main character we see is Fugui. Yes. And he is your stereotypical spoiled rich kid. I always expected him to say, do you know who my father is? <laughs> yes. Because he is going out at gambling halls and uh, spending all his parents' money. Oh, my God. His, his father is just beside himself because he is a total addict he cannot stop gambling and we watch him over the course of multiple nights i think they show it multiple nights of quite literally gambling away his inheritance he's completely the thing is he shows almost no remorse yes and you can see when they shove the thing of him signing off like his debt and it's just page after page after page of his signature and his little thumbprint. Yeah. And he comes home. His he's married. Yes. And his wife is, she's disgusted with him. His father is admonishing him, but he just doesn't have a care in the world. Yeah. You can tell the gambling hall they tr they still treat him well, you know, because they yeah. want his money. Uh, absolutely. So, like, yes. The one guy he's always losing money to is a guy named Long Air. Yes. And he's the guy's, you know, very nice. Like, oh, I'm sorry you lose. Can you just mind signing this, please? And he's mm -hmm. very nice. But they know because they, I think that second to last time he goes yeah. to the gambling hall, he says, one more time and you got him in a bind. Yes. So he knows, like, yeah. I almost got him. Yeah. He's what's what, what in uh, American gambling parlance is called a mark. Yes. Yes. If, if, if he was here today, he'd be all about that fan duel and draft game. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But, um, He's uh, the next time he goes, his wife is upset with him. He's got a young, uh, young, young girl, yes, young baby girl, yes, and she's about to have a boy, right? And but he says she keeps warning him, but he doesn't. Listen. Oh, she actually even shows up yeah, at, at, the, gambling at the gambling hall, and he just brushes her aside, tells her to go back, tells her to go back home, and it's completely 
indifferent to the chaos he's creating in his family. Uh, so I, I don't know about you, but the, the first part of this movie, you don't like this guy. No, he's you know, reprehensible. He, he's a reprehensible human being. And what's remarkable about the movie is by the end of it, you really do like him. He's done a complete turnaround. Yeah, and uh, it's kind of, I'm sorry, I'm jumping in here. Um, but it, 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 it's one of the reasons that I, I, this movie just really strikes me as uh, epic in the sense of really, as good epic movies do, um, really giving you a sense of the scale of the events involved, either through time or in space. In this case, it's through time. You really have a a real good sense of the development of all of the characters in this film, but particularly Fugui, uh, over the decades. Because, you know, it starts in the 40s when he is this hopeless gambling hound and ends up, I would say, somewhere in the 70s or 80s. It's kind of hard to say um, when he's a much older and much wiser man uh, after all the experiences he's been through, he and his wife. Yeah. yeah so it's... So eventually, like I said, he's, they say, one more time, you got him, and yeah. it happens. And they, after he loses, he's about to sign it. says, you have nothing more credit. You, there's nothing else you could possibly gamble. He owns you, and he's going to take your house. Yes. And basically, he comes home. He's admonished by everybody, and they have to move out. And Long Air now owns their house. Yes. And now he's... But eventually at that time, because he realizes he's got to find a way to make money. And the one thing we do see he's pretty good at is doing yeah. these shadow puppet shows. He gets these old... Actually, it's Long Air, right? Who was the original shadow puppet guy. And he says, well, basically, you know, he comes to Long Air later. Yeah. That's right. He comes to his house, his former house, and basically asks for a loan. And he's not gambling anymore. He has given up gambling by this point. And genuinely given it up and has no interest in it anymore. But Long Air says, you know what, um, I'm not just going to give you money, but I'm going to give you a way to make money. And he gives him this neat little chest with these shadow puppets in it. That It's very much of a, tra a tradition, in tradition, traditional Chinese entertainment. Um, he says, here, learn how to use these, make a living using these. Yeah, it is a cool thing because he yeah. has in the background with some lights and they have the puppet shows, but there's music and a musical accompaniment too. Yes, yes. And he, said, and he does this, is now the war is going on. The Chinese Civil War has been resumed. Yeah. And he's still performing. And there's one interesting shot. He's performing and I don't think he knows what's going on exactly. All of a sudden a bayonet cuts through the screen. Yes. And it's the, the Nationalist Army first. Yes. Shek, and they're saying... You're conscripted. You're working with you're, us. You're going with us. And they allow him to take his puppets yeah. with him. Yeah. And there's this really amusing scene uh, when uh, they're on the front uh, with the nationalist troops. And some officer is going down this uh, trench. Yeah. And he starts yelling and complaining, what is this thing in my way? What is this? And he has to explain to him, well, it's mine. It's, it's, it's my puppet thing. He says, don't, don't get rid of it. Don't get rid of it. Okay, just get it out of my way. I don't want it underfoot again. Yeah, that's a great scene. Yeah, and so it's, they get to the war, and they're kind of told they're basically forced into service. And the yes. older guy who sort of kind of educates them about the way of things, he says, if you try to escape, you'll just get shot. Right. And But eventually... They wake up and there's this, this area for the wounded. Yeah. 
It's after some battle, but then everybody's left. They woke up, everybody's left except yes. the wounded. It's this mass grave of people. Yeah. And then they see the communist army is advancing, and they're told to just put your hands up, don't put up any resistance. Yeah. And there is this massive army that's coming. But what's funny is most of them just ignore them. Yes. And there's one, there's a one little funny scene because the one guy's holding them up. Yeah. Holding them at gunpoint. Then he opens up their uh, thing and it looks sees all the shadow puppets cut to at night. And yeah. they're now entertaining the communists. Yes. Army. Right. Right. And that that scene where the the communist troops are coming over that hill and and down the hill. Boy, is that a well done scene because. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I watched the film with headphones on, and the the sound, the sound of this rolling thunder of all of these troops coming toward them, and them turning around and kind of fruitlessly trying to run away from these guys. But then on the other hand, there there's so many of them they largely ignore them as they run past them, except for the one guy. Just a great scene, another great scene, reflecting the enormity of that civil war just how many yes. people were involved eventually the war comes to an end the com- as we know communists win the nationalists chiang kai-shek flee and now settle in taiwan which they still are today yes and he comes back home and what, what i do find interesting about this film is you think like especially early on that it's going to be this long whole movie's going to be about his gambling addiction like something like the lost weekend no. After that, after he gets humbled, he's done. He has, he, 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 he gives it up. It, it's it, it's it, it, he gives it up cold turkey, and he has absolutely no problem doing it. Yes. And what's uh, very interesting here is at, at this phase of the story too. Uh, um, he is given a commendation yes. by the so communist army for having uh, done his part, i.e., entertaining the troops with the shadow puppets. And this looms large a little later. Um, as we see, uh, at that stage of uh, Chinese history, uh, the communists who were be- very ambivalent about chi- traditional Chinese culture because they thought it was uh, in some way or another reflective of the landlord class, which they considered to be the exploiting class and the ones that were taking advantage of what amounted to the working class in China, which would be the peasantry, right? So. They had an ambivalent uh, feeling about that, but early on, you can see they kind of tolerate it in the form of that uh, uh, puppet show. And uh, as things progress, we see the, during the Cultural Revolution period and the Great Leap Forward period that are um, honestly presented in this Chinese film. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, uh, we'll see that um, they more and more. Uh, encroach on that traditional way of life and want to snuff it out. Yes. Yeah. He comes back home and him and his wife, um, Jia Zhen, mm-hmm. they're married. Their daughter, they have a boy who's about five or six, I'd say, and their daughter's a few years older than that. But the daughter, um, Feng Jia, has, she had a serious fever. Yes. And because of that, she is... She's become mute, and I believe she's deaf. I don't know if no, she's, she's not. She's partially deaf. Partially she can deaf. Hear, but can... You have to be really loud. You almost have to scream. Yes. 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 And he sort of has to pick up the pieces. They now live in a little, their little kind of shack area, and they yeah. meet. I forget the guy's name, but he's like their neighborhood communist agent or something. Yeah. I forget the... He's the cadre. Yeah. He's the local communist cadre, basically. Yeah. 
and he's just sort of they're just sort of checking in. He's sort of giving them an update mm-hmm. on how things are, what he, what they're supposed to do in their neighborhood, and comply with the party. Yeah, and he's. We have to keep in mind here, too. I think it's important to point out that this guy is not in any way threatening or intimidating. Very friendly. He's a very friendly guy, and he's also a true believer. Yeah. You see, time and again through the film, he he. Uh, uh, praises Mao, you know, and he's serious about this. And he, he's a committed, decent man who happens to be committed to communism as the way forward. And this looms large later in the film. Yeah, the, one of the first things that he does, because he talks, he looks at his certificate. He shows him his certificate and he goes, you did a good job. And he goes, he's like, well, I only uh, performed at a puppet show or something. And, hey, they took a mountain. You did a good, you know, you, yeah. you, you provided the morale for them to win. He's, yes. But around that same time, he asks about Long Air and his house, and they tell him that he is considered the upper class, he is being put on trial, he will later be executed, yep. and they're going to burn his house down, Yes, like, which was formerly Fugue's house. Yes. And he, he, go, he goes there, he sees his execution, and he's, he is terrified because yes. he said, if I didn't gamble everything away and we still stayed in that house, it would have been us that would have been put on trial That's and executed. Right. And so, notice when he runs home to... Uh, tell his wife what's happened. Uh, he his first thing he asks is, "What class are we?" Yeah. Right. And uh, he knows full well when he's asking that if they find out his actual history that he was in fact from the wealthier classes, the quote landlord classes, uh, sometimes also called the capitalist classes, then he's going to be uh, categorized as in that group, and his family will be in danger. And so. Uh, his wife, thinking on her feet very quickly, says, but wait, what about that certificate you got from uh, the uh, People's Liberation Army? Um, let's find it. She had actually been washing his clothes, and yes, it was in the pocket. pocket. So they very care, and he, he does a good job filming this, yeah. very carefully unfold that wet document, and they uh, eventually they say let's let it up, set it out let it dry frame it put it in a prominent place right back right next to that picture of chairman yeah. mao 600 so, pictures of chairman, chairman mao. mao right um but uh wow yeah powerful scene and uh again uh for a chinese film um uh, surprisingly honest about the reign of terror it is. It is. yeah Definitely looks at all the important, like, cultural revolution is the one everybody thinks about. Yeah. And we see one of the things they were also heavy on was getting steel. Yes, and that's from the previous period called the Great Leap Forward, Forward, which was in the 50s. And they do a very accurate job there of representing how communists tended to handle uh, things like their big projects like the Great Leap Forward. They they created quotas that had to be met of, of steel, in this case, for uh, fighting non-communists or taking Taiwan, as, as the um, Maoists were constantly talking about, and as they still talk about today, as we've heard just recently, right? Um, but uh, they, they create these quotas, and they send their cadres out, and, and they take um, from the citizenry any and all uh, materials, in this case metal, that will help them meet that quota and you see Jinui again, the, the, the cadre, uh, very friendly, but, and he's, he's, this is his job. He's undertaking the job with enthusiasm. And you see him come to their household, and they have to turn over a bike. They have to turn over cookware, everything except, oddly enough, the puppets. 
Because he, he was thinking about he was going to take them. Right. One of the things he said was, "There's not much metal in it." He's like, "Well, that's the the little brass knob things on it. You that's know, one bullet. Two bullets. And yeah, those are two bullets that could take Taiwan. Right. Or kill Chiang Kai Shek. And it was yeah. funny is at the end, uh, they convince him to l- let him keep the chest. Yeah. And his little son says. We're, we're not taking Taiwan then? And then the old guy doesn't really know that he's making no, fun of No, he them. actually puts it this way. I love it. He says, we're not taking Taiwan. Yeah. <laughs> right? And so for a minute they panic. Oh, he shouldn't have said that. But the cadre takes it well. He just yeah. kind of leaves. And the two parents just turn around and say, you laugh at it. You crazy kid. I love it. It's just a, a nice bit of humor and uh, showing that tight family connection that they do such a good job uh, portraying in this film. Yes, and eventually, around that time, is they're having children also work. Yes. Because you see that they're constantly exhausted, the yeah. two kids. And but they form a good bond because uh, the daughter is being uh, bullied by some neighborhood kids. And mm-hmm. now because they talked about how taking away everybody's cookery, they have neighborhood like banquets and stuff so that everybody's eating in the town. Yeah. And one, and he pours the hot soup over one of the bullies, and the the parent admonishes him, and then starts saying like, "Oh, this is this is offensive to the government," or, or I forget exactly yeah. what he said. Yeah. And Fugue's scared because that's the he could get them in trouble, so he just uh, admonishes his kid in public. Right. And then and, explains to his wife later on, "I had to do that, yeah. just so we don't we don't incur any great risk from this happening because this guy was." trying to make the case that the his parents had set him up to do this as a way to sabotage the uh uh the the uh foundry yeah. efforts that they were undertaking so he, he he tries to explain to her i had to do that for the well-being of the family mm-hmm. yeah and eventually yoquing he was he didn't they didn't want him to work because he was too exhausted yes but eventually they tried to convince him to go back to work because i think they said a district chief yeah is visiting that day so he has to be there he goes yeah. goes there we learned that he was he was exhausted he fell asleep next to a wall next to a wall yeah. and the district chief backed up into that wall and the in his vehicle collapsed on yeah yoquing and killed him right and then we their family is devastated, and they're at a burial for him. And the district chief wants to try to meet him and apologize. Yeah. And we realize that the district chief is Chang 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 Sheng, Fu Gui's army friend. Who's yeah. Like, who was with him both in the nationalist and the communist side when they were yes. both getting captured. And he was a guy that loved, uh, had a fascination with uh, driving. Right. Remember. And so uh, when. Fujui and he split up after after uh, having served in the communist army. Uh, we discover at this point that he actually had served in the transportation corps, right? Uh, through a longer period of time during the Civil War, so he in, ended up becoming a fairly important figure in the Communist Party afterwards. Yeah. Yes, and. So they have the funeral. They don't want anything to do with him, particularly with um, the wife, Yashin. Yeah, and she tells him later on that they owe he owes them a life. a life. Yes. Yeah, and then it kind of flashes forward. Now we're into the late fifties, early sixties. It's the Cultural Revolution. Yeah, Feng Jia is now, I'm assuming, like eighteen, nineteen. She's still living at home. Yep. And the uh, the town the town clerk, the constable, the uh, 
cleric or whatever. He the is, cadre. Cadre. Yeah. He is. He meets them and he's trying to play matchmaker. Yes. And there is a man, um, one of the red guards, Erxy. Yeah. He is uh, has a bad leg. Right. But they're saying he's a nice man. They kind of they so they do a little matchmaker. He comes in and meets them and they. She, he first meets Fenchia and she almost just backs away from him. Yeah. They think, oh no, it didn't go well. She didn't talk to him. But then we see her because he's a you know he's. Doubt all in the communist garb. He's very also a yeah. big believer in the communist party. Yeah, she's putting on the little red communist hat and admiring herself and dressing up like a typical yeah uh, communist. So party they know member. that she liked him yes. at that point. Yeah, he's a member of the Red Guard. And the Red Guard uh, during the Cultural Revolution were uh, typically younger people that uh, were in fact very suspicious of anybody older as it were, holdovers from the previous uh, uh, social order. Um, so they ended up doing a, actually a, a great deal of harm in China, accusing a lot of people of being uh, reactionaries, capitalists, or members of the landlord class. And uh, it's kind of interesting in this film, uh, Erxi and his uh, group of friends who are all Red Guard, uh, and they're all guys, um, they're relatively friendly, right? So I think it does a good job here of showing not not every member of the Red Guard was this kind of rabid ideological, yes. you know. You um, most think it would be like Soviet Russia with like the KGB yeah. and the Nazis with the Gestapo and they're very intimidating, but they, 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 they seem more friendly. They seem more friendly and even even the girls that run the hospital in the end do. Um, but the film nevertheless shows uh, the extent to which they did go in terms of um, persecutions. Yes. Um, and also the damage they did in terms of destroying um, uh, institutions and removing competent professionals from those institutions. Yes, that will lead into the next, yes. the final, really most heartbreaking part of this. It's oh my goodness! A couple of years later, they've um, the daughter and the guy are happily married, and they're about to have a child. Yes, and she's going to the hospital to give birth, and they're in the waiting room. They're trying to tell her it's going to be okay, but then they realize all the doctors are young kids. The one woman that's looking over there, she doesn't even look yeah. twenty. Yeah. And they realize that all the old doctors, they were considered intellectuals and they had them moved and imprisoned. Yes. And one of the things they do, they're a bit nervous. And Erickse, who's Red Guard, he does this. He brings that one of the old doctors of that facility out of prison to yeah. make sure. Now, keep in mind, okay. this is at the insist insistence of Jai Jin. Yeah. I think the most courageous character in this film is Jai Jin. Uh, multiple times she does things. Uh, she knows are right for her family, despite the p potential risk there would be uh, with the communists. Uh, ev even that reaction she has when uh, the district chief, John Cheng, shows up, the old friend, she is not afraid to show him her, her disdain for him and how angry she is at him, even though she knows the risk involved in doing so. Um, her husband kind of cowers a little bit. He's a little afraid to do that. And she's the one here at the hospital, once again, that says, look, um, my daughter needs somebody to keep care of her that isn't just literally uh, amateur wearing a white smock. Yeah, kid out of high school. Yeah. It's not even in med school. They're just, they're political cadre that decided 
they knew who best to run a hospital based on communist ideology, whether they adhered to it or not. Um, she realizes that's complete bunk. And she uh, uh, asks Erixi, um, who I think is, I think he also is a more realistic person. He's not a rabid ideologue either. He doesn't come across that way. And, and his little band of fellow, his closer friends in the Red Guard, they don't come across that way. Um, but he's, she says, look, you know, you know your wife needs a doctor. We need somebody to over, be here just in case something happens. So, again, very accurately, they show him uh, having gone to the prison and coming back with this doctor, what they placard on, uh, on him. And this was typical of what they did during this period of history. They would humiliate these people in public and put placards on them that would say something to the effect, you know, I, I, am, a, I am a capitalist pawn, I'm a reactionary. And they would do these uh, kinds of things called struggle sessions and criticism sessions in public and humiliate these people and then very often kill them. So he hasn't got to the stage where they, they're going to kill him yet. But um, they, they, they bring him to the hospital in, in a very telling scene. Uh, the, the girl Red Guard, who's nominally in charge of the medical staff here, you're right, she can't be more than 18. She says, what's he doing here? He can't be here. Uh, one... one Juan Erxie uh, thinks on his feet. He says, okay, um, I just want you to know why he's here. Um, he, uh, educating he's, a, he, he's a reactionary, and we are sub submitting him to a criticism and education session. So he realizes the class enemy that he is, in fact, is. We're, we're, and he doesn't believe this for a minute, yeah. right? And he, he even tells a doctor after she scurries on says look i didn't mean any of that we just need to have you here so you can look after my wife and our child and the big thing um, though is that he's been starved yes three he, at least three days yes if so not more they give him these big buns right and he can't control himself because he's been starving so long and he's just gorging gorging himself, himself on him yes and then it comes to the hard part originally she gives birth and all goes okay but there's been blood loss and internal and yes these kids do not know how to handle it because they are not trained doctors they were not trained for this they're not trained in any way for so medical arts so they're running to get the doctor the doctor has become sick because he's eating too much they give him water yeah the thing is the water having that much water will just expand all that and it'll make you very very sick yes and he so is he is he is out of commission he cannot help yeah he cannot help and at all the daughter unfortunately even though the baby has been fine the daughter bleeds to death and now they have no more children. Yes. And that's sort of near the end of the movie. And we have a final scene. They're visiting the grave of their, both of their children. Mm -hmm. um, they take care of the grandchild and uh, their son-in-law, Erxy. Yeah. And Fugue talks about that last scene. He talks about the doctor. And he blames himself because he says, like, giving him that water expanding because he had seven buns. But giving that water basically squared it and made it like it's 49 buns right so right he blames himself and that's what's so interesting about this movie it show all the th bad things that have happened in their life mm -hmm. are a lot of times due to communist policies but they never blame the party yeah. i don't know if they are doing that just so they can not get in trouble with the party or if that's what they honestly believe because they've been said oh the party's always right
Yeah, I, I well, I, I think I can answer that uh, last portion. I don't think they're, uh, I don't think they're ever quite were committed communists. So I don't think they have this view that Mao is all right, always right, and the party is all right, always right. I think there's some symbolism in the film that exists uh, 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 when uh, Erksy first uh, uh, courts their daughter, right? Um, they are off at a market, and then somebody runs to the market and says, some, some uh, a red guard are tearing up your place. You better get back there fast. And one of them's lame. So they go, oh, my God, what's going on? So you think the worst. You think he, he, he turned them in as being reactionaries, and they're paying the price. They show up, not at all what's going on. Uh, it's he and his small band of very close friends um, remodeling the place. And they paint a very nice mural of Chairman Mao on it with a saying underneath to the effect of uh, workers, you know, this is a worker's world or something like that. So it's very fresh. It's very kind of exciting in a way. Um, now, they, they are aware of how the communists exercise their power, right? But, uh, and, and are afraid of them. So they're not believers. Yet they have connections with, uh, as it turns out, uh, von Erksy, uh, and also Jinui, the cadre, who are communists. So they know these guys are good people. And then in some way, they perhaps kind of insulate them from the large-scale horrors that were going on at that period of time, right? So they kind of tolerate it. You even find Fugui of expressing a, a famous saying. I forget the exact uh, progression of it, but it's, uh, in effect, a, a positive thing, uh, a, a, an animal turning into different types of animals until it, 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 the penultimate stage is an ox, and then the last stage of its development, it becomes a communist. I can't remember. Do you remember that line? Remember. Yeah. Um, so you see maybe they're a reflection of the fact they feel good about these closer personal relationships with people that are believing communists, right? But at the end of the film, uh, he doesn't say that again with a uh, little bun in that last scene when they're eating together. Uh, he tells the same story, that progression of an animal that becomes a different sort of animal in each progression. And then when he gets to that point where uh, he had earlier said the ox becomes a communist, right? Or turns into a communist. He doesn't say that. It, he says something else, which reflects the power of family. That ultimately, I think, is the, the power of the story. Um, that um, the, the power of a family to uh, boost each other, help each other, family and friends, I should say this. Um, in times of great adversity and great persecution, uh, that's much stronger than any political ideology. And it's ultimately what drives society kind of underneath the surface of political ideologies. I think that's the message of this film. Um, and it does it in a way that also couches, uh, couches it in a, for a Chinese film, a, a pretty sustained critique of Maoist communism too, which amazed me as I was watching this because 
you know as a filmmaker or as a person that writes literature or anything in China, that's always a dicey affair. You have to be very careful about what you write because um, uh, if you know anything about the, the history of Chinese communism, it kind of goes through sine waves of uh, relative openness in terms of being able to critique the system and critique people in the government. And uh, you know it, periods of relative openness don't last. That's kind of the high point of the sine wave maybe. And then um, they tend, the pendulum swings the other way and you get into periods of great repression, like I think is happening actually now in China. Um, so this film was done in 1993-94, right? And this yes. was during a period of relative openness. Um, and I, I, I wondered as I was watching the film, um, I wondered at the filmmaker's courage in, in doing this. Um, but I also wondered if he was being foolhardy given that very predictable uh, sine wave of um, repression that happens in Chinese society. Yeah, as we uh, bring me bringing up, we might as well now talk about the director, uh, Zhang Yimou. Mm -hmm. And um, he's probably one of the more famous directors to come from either Hong Kong or China. Yeah. And he's, he is strange because this film didn't go over well with the Chinese government. It was did not it was denied a theatrical release in mainland China. I know when he um, screened it at the Cannes Film Festival in France, that didn't, without their permission, and that didn't sit well. Yeah. <clears throat> and if you look at his career, his other films, this isn't the only time he's made a film that has been critical, has had been critical of the Chinese government. There was another film um, coming home where this man is wrongly in prison and he comes home to his wife and she's, it's implied, I don't, it's been a while since I've seen it, but I believe it's been implied that she's been abused by one of the Communist Party members. Mm -hmm. um, there was one not called Not One Less where a 13, it's a little Chinese village and this 13-year-old girl has to be a substitute teacher for this elementary school because the teacher has been in prison for something. Yeah. And the story is that one of the boys has gone missing and he's I think it's been once again been a minute since I've seen it but I mean, he's going into a big town and she has to go into this big metropolitan city to find him mm. and eventually she does and they become like a big uh, like TV sensation they're being interviewed and the the boy it kind of has this thing where you know she went out for me but no one else did like not even the governor or anybody else cared she was the only one that cared yeah and there was another, and the road home is another movie which once again there's a teacher that is wrongly imprisoned and you're thinking oh he's always going to do this right and how is he getting away with it yeah, sometimes he makes movies that are kind of considered propaganda i think there was one recently called cliff walkers which takes place in the 30s but basically the heroes are member are communist secret agents yeah another movie like his most if probably his most famous movie internationally is probably which changed his career a lot was called hero it's this grand martial arts epic this was definitely done in the style of uh, crouching tiger hidden dragon which that film was made by a taiwanese filmmaker and made in taiwan mm -hmm. but it's a grand and it's a great movie but at the end like it has a very controversial ending because people think it's somewhat advocating autocracy 
and totalitarianism. Somebody says it's ideology. Might as well just uh, do a double feature with Triumph of the Will. <laughs> and he does yeah. that, and so you don't know what like. Do you like the Communist Party or do you not? Because yeah. sometimes you go between propaganda, highly critical, propaganda, highly critical. I yeah, just, I, don't, I don't know where he stands. He, well, well, and and you know that's probably pur purposeful on his part. He's uh, the positive re reading would be that he's create by kind of balancing out the, the pro-communist cinema with the cr critical cinema. He's creating a space for himself where he can continue to work. Whereas if he was entirely critical, his chances of being free are significantly diminished, and he wouldn't be able to <laughs> wouldn't be able to continue. Um, I think that's probably the most likely reading of it. Um, it, but it it does kind of boggle the mind that he's allowed to get away with it for as long as he does. And I guess the maybe part of the reason. Uh, in terms of the mindset of the Communist Party, uh, is probably it probably has something to do with the, something that's it's only hinted at in the film with the scene with the doctor. Um, this notion of criticism and self-criticism. Um, this is a, a very uh, central notion in how communists deal with um, not only uh, opponents, but people in their own party that are somehow or another failed in uh, meeting the goals or are perceived to have failed to meet the goals that are set or who are perceived to perhaps unintentionally be harboring um, um, types of thought that they see as being um, um, uh, backward and uh, signifying of capitalism or feudal uh, political ideologies. When they have people like that within the party, what they do is they set up, it's a really, really, it's, it's kind of a standard operating procedure. They have these very public sessions where you are criticized by other members of the party uh, uh, and you have to sit through it and it can get quite personal and quite um, humiliating. And then you have to get up and criticize yourself. Admit your faults, confess your sins, so to speak, right? And then once you've done that, if they read it as having been sincere, um, you're allowed to continue <laughs> in your uh, uh, job, even if it's a reduced job. If you, you, you may be demoted in some way, but you would, you're still allowed to, as it were, earn a living. So it might be that they look at his, uh, his body of work as being some kind of an instantiation of this uh, uh, crit criticism, self-criticism, um, methodology that they use and so that in a certain way they're willing to tolerate it right as long as he balances it with enough positive portrayals yeah um, I, I think that's the answer because he's been doing it for decades yeah. 
He's probably his movies make money. I, there was a movie that just came out this year. He directed. I haven't seen it. I, I don't think it's necessarily propaganda. It's more like a mystery comedy kind of thing. Yeah. Top ten highest grossing film of the year worldwide. Yeah. That goes right up against stuff with Avengers and any kind of superhero movies. Well, and you have to say this for for I, this is the only film I've seen of this man. He's an extraordinary director. Yes. This film is. I I can't get over how moved i was by this film it like i said earlier it's epic in the best sense of the word epic it's not not like the toga and sandal epics that we, we had here you know biblical epics that don't have much character uh, mm -hmm. development or anything this is kind of like it reminded me of dr zhivago uh, a film set in a tumultuous political period but it, it focuses on individuals and tells their stories and their trials and tribulations and how they hang together and support each other and does this in a way also um with a a, a perfect choice of actors all of these actors are able to convey their character's development but also physically to take on the appearance of having aged decades in this film because that early part of the film when he's that young kind of just totally insensitive gambler right he he looks significantly younger there than he does later on and especially those final scenes after the tragic uh, loss of his daughter you really feel he's aged uh, decades and that goes for everybody else in that film too it's just you like all the characters. That's what's amazing about it. There really are no uh, bad guys that are main characters in this film. No. Nobody, not even the communists. They're they're basically kind of well intent. The the evil that the communists do is kind of off stage in a way, to some extent. Mm. Um, but the the ones he knows personally, uh, they're friendly people. They're trying to do good, and. Um, just makes it all the more realistic, I think, because it would be, it would probably be much more dangerous for him to have done it any other way, make the communists just one-dimensional evil characters, right? He doesn't do that. Uh, but that's what makes it tick. That's what make this, makes this thing tick, because un once again, underneath all of that political stuff, the stuff that really makes a society uh, churn along and function are those closer personal relationships that uh, are quite quite aside from the politics. Okay, getting close to the end of my questions, one other thing I did want to bring up, because there were times as we had just recently done 1984, mm -hmm. and me reading the book for the first time ever in my life just a couple months ago, <laughs> I was noticing similarities from 1984, mainly because this whole thing about shadow puppets, and he eventually, they don't let him do that anymore. Yes. They said you can't, Anything previous to the Communist Party, like you're bringing up the whole part about, you know, it would bring up that class system and people oppressing the downtrodden, and even says, like, well, what if I did puppet shows about how great Mao is? Yeah. They said even just the act of doing this old-timey puppet show yeah. is just not in the mold. Because the, the characters in the puppet show are all characters from feudal yes. China. And feudal China, just like capitalist, uh, any capitalist society, is, is essential, essentially an exploitative system. And the communists believe they're creating the first system in the history of the world that has no exploitation at all. So in order to make sure that there is no resurgence of such exploitative systems, they felt they had to purge all remnants of earlier 
societies, and that's very symbolic, symbolically shown in the fact that he has to burn those, those puppets at that point. Now, again, this is during the Cultural Revolution, quite accurate. They were fervent and fanatic about this. And then one other last thing I want to bring up, because this is interesting, bringing up his director's career and just how the Chinese cinema has gone through a lot of changes, I feel like, since everything, Hong Kong cinema. Hong Kong was given back to China, I believe, in 93? Yeah, that's about right. And you just, you know, you saw all these you know, great visionary filmmakers, you know, the action movie stars, like, you know, directors like John Woo, and then more art, art house directors, Wong Kar Wai, which we talked about with in The Mood for Love. Yeah. But over the years, I've noticed lately, it's become just more and more in line with somehow government yeah. propaganda. Yeah. Like, if you watch any martial arts films recently, I can almost guarantee you the villain is either going to be an American, a Brit... <laughs> Or it's going to take place in World War II, and the uh, guy's going to be Japanese. Of which course, you yeah. can apply that to every single one of the Ip Man films. Ip Man uh, was famously the teacher of Bruce Lee, and the first movie it's during the occupation. He fights the Japanese, mainly the sadistic Japanese officer. Um, then later on, in the second one, it's a Brit. He does a boxing match with the Brit. It's basically Rocky Four. Um, then the third movie, it's uh, he goes to America, and he uh, third fourth uh, third one he fights Mike Tyson. And in the fourth one, he goes to America and he deals with a racist um, American uh, general who was, but somehow likes the Japanese. I didn't get that part. <laughs> he hates Chinese culture, but Japanese culture, I'm totally okay with. I, I didn't get that part. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting you, you bring that up because uh, this isn't a Hong Kong um, uh, film company. It's Shanghai. Yeah, it is mainly. And Shanghai is kind of in, was and still is kind of in that same boat in terms of uh, Communist Party tolerance of a relatively free and open market and also society um, because they recognize the economic gain that they the, the entirety of China can gain from them allowing a, a certain amount of leeway. And one of the big selling points that they tried to give Hong Kong before they took it over was, yeah, we're going to allow you to continue to do this. And, and they to some extent have, but it's been more in the business realm, right? Because this is how China makes money. They've kind of resigned themselves to the fact that communism doesn't actually work. So they've essentially uh, fallen back on a state-run monopoly of uh, business in, in all of its aspects and um, uh, reap the benefits of that while still being doctrinaire Marxist-Leninists, uh, Maoists too. Um, and they did that in Hong Kong, and they've also there's also been that also always been that same kind of ambivalence with regard to Shanghai. So, uh, and it, it's 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 two pronged. It's not only the business uh, aspects that they were kind of tolerant of, of relative openness, but also the cultural. Guess why? It makes China look good, but it also pulls in money. Um, you're right. The the Hong Kong and the uh, Shanghai uh, film industry is a money maker for communist China uh, because the, quali the, the the products are great. These are great films. This one in particular just blows my mind. Um, and it is kind of a shame to see, and once again, that sine wave starting with Xi, he's much more of a kind of a hardcore doctrinaire uh, communist. You, you, you kind of see that shying away from making uh, challenging films, 
Uh, and I, I suspect that that's also going on in Shanghai, not just Hong Kong. All right. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy at the Movies. You can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu. This program is hosted by Radio Stockdale. You can also listen to their podcasts such as Ethics and the Naval Warrior and The Do-Over. If you like this podcast, you might be interested in my other podcast, Real Sounds, which episode is dedicated to classic movie soundtracks. That can be found online at thesoundofcinema.podomatic.com. And for our next episode, we will be discussing the 2002 film Signs. If you don't want to be spoiled, be sure to watch that movie before the next episode airs. So until next time, I'm Alex Baker. And I'm Sean Baker. Saying if you go up hanging pictures of Chairman Mao, you ain't going to make it with anybody anyhow. (laughs) 